expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Can I help you? Are you Emma Swan? Yeah, who are you? My name's Henry. I'm your son. Oh, hey, kid, kid, kid. I don't have a son. Where are your parents? 10 years ago, did you give up a baby for adoption? That was me. You know, we should probably get going. Going where? I want you to come home with me. Okay, kid. I'm calling the cops. And I'll tell them you kidnapped me. And they'll believe you because I'm your birth mother. Yep. You're not going to do that. Try me. You're pretty good. But here's the thing. There's not a lot I'm great at in life. But I have one skill. Let's call it a superpower. I can tell when anyone is lying, and you, kid, are. Wait. Please don't call the cops. Please. Come home with me. Where's home? Storybrooke, Maine. Storybrooke? Seriously? Mm-hmm. Alrighty then. Let's get you back to Storybrooke. Son. I'm not sure you're ready. Ready for some fairy tales? They're not fairy tales. They're true. Every story in this book actually happened. Of course it did. Use your superpower. See if I'm lying. Just because you believe something doesn't make it true. That's exactly what makes it true. You should know more than anyone. Why is that? Because you're in this book. Oh, kid. You've got problems. Yep, and you're gonna fix them. Okay, kid, how about an address? 44th, not telling you, Street. Look, it's been a long night, and it's almost... 8.15? That clock hasn't moved my whole life. Time's frozen here. Excuse me? The evil queen did it with her curse. She sent everyone from the enchanted forest here. Hang on. An evil queen sent a bunch of fairy tale characters here. Yeah, and now they're trapped. Frozen in time, stuck in Storybrooke, Maine. That's what you're going with? It's true. Then why does everybody just leave? They can't. If they try, bad things happen. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, May 24th, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. Oh, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to the show today where it's all about stories today. Specifically, fairy tales, where bad things happen. We'll be looking at the greatest story ever told, and we'll be looking at the value of science fiction and fantasy. We're talking about 
political correctness, too. We're going to spread our red alert campaign to a red riding alert campaign. Right, red riding hood alert campaign, actually. And fairy tales, are they a grim reminder of our fears? Oh, groan. <laughs> Don't like that, eh, Robert? You obviously spend a lot of time dreaming these up. Oh, you got to... There's some good shows out there, you know. Robert and I will be looking, of course, today at the fascinating subject of fairy tales, including the fairy tale of political correctness told in a fairy tale style. And yes, our Red Alert theme will now expand to a Red Riding Hood Alert theme. We'll be looking at the issue of whether an interest or a love of fantasy and imaginary tales is somehow a way of avoiding reality, or is it something else? We'll take a brief brief look at the history of the fairy tale and its impact upon our culture and on our politics. This may not be as esoteric a subject as many might expect. And I don't know about you, Robert, but I think fairy tales seem to be making a bit of a comeback in television fair of late, or is it just my imagination? <laughs> or is it somebody else's imagination? <laughs> hey, he's catching on quick. Before I, You're already laughing before I finish my question. Now, I don't know if you know the show, but our opening feature for today's show was a very condensed edit from the first episode of Once Upon a Time, one of a number of shows floating around out there that have a very specific fairy tale theme to them. You might know some others. Grimm is another. And the theme of fairy tales we see popping up in other unexpected places as well, as we will hear later in the show today. Now, when it first debuted on television last October, National Post writer Alex Strachan on October 18, 2011, asked the question, Can fairy tale fantasy survive amid reality TV? Once Upon a Time premieres this Sunday on A Wing and a Prayer. It's one of the most distinctive and unusual network TV dramas since critically acclaimed but short-lived efforts such as Pushing Daisies, and few industry insiders give it much of a chance in a network TV setting populated largely by cop shows, sitcoms, and reality series. So that's how they were looking at it when it debuted. Well, since only one out of a hundred pilots ever make it, so it's an easy bet to make. Maybe. Fast forward to Bill Harris's coverage of the season finale on ABC and CTV this past May 12 in the London Free Press, and the answer to the question asked in the Post last October is very clear. Quote, There are many reasons why Once Upon a Time was a hit right out of the box. It is based on the premise that all the fairy tale characters you know and love really existed in an alternate universe. A curse by the evil queen, played by Lana Perilla, took away all the happy endings and banished the fairy tale characters to our world, where most of them are unaware of their true identities, as they reside in a town called Storybrook, Maine. Emma, played by Jennifer Morrison, is the key to breaking the curse, though she has never believed it. As with all fantasy TV or film, the villains are the driving forces here. Morrison, who previously played Dr. Allison Cameron on House, said one of the main things that attracted her to Once Upon a Time is that the creators are not making it up as they go along. When I first sat down with them, they told me their ideas in a way that you felt they had already watched the show for six years, Morrison said. Not surprising, since the Post reports that the two writing partners of Once Upon a Time, Edward Kitsis and Adam Horowitz, took almost eight years to plan the series concept to its premiere. So it sounds like they've got a clear plan. So finally, Robert, uh, it's a show I like, and it's popular too. Imagine that. And maybe this one will avoid the fatal mistakes made by shows like Lost and Battlestar Galactica, both which I think started out by raising the bar of their genres, you know. 
and then falling back on old formulaic and predictable outcomes, which was disappointing, I thought, which made them, to me, boringly irrelevant the way they ended, right? Started so off they were great. written as if they were written on the fly. True, and I think what happened, and I hope it doesn't happen to this show, when a show gets very popular, I don't think its producers want to give up producing it too easily, even if the story has ended. And so they keep going. Yes. Yeah. Remember Heroes? Heroes should have ended with the first season, left it at that. Yeah. And I think that bad seasons and bad productions end, end up hurting the whole series in the long term. Well, this particular show yeah. is one of my favorites. My wife and I watch it. I've even watched The Ender, which mm-hmm. I understand you haven't even watched no. the season in. It has yet. something to do with Red Riding Hood, too, didn't it? Or did it? Weren't you telling me something about Yeah, yeah. well... Not, yeah, you don't have to tell there's, me. There's parts about Red Riding Hood that okay. I, I revealed to you that yeah. you didn't know about, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I'm But not... it's a great, uh, mysterious ending, and uh, it's got me hooked. Well, you know, I have, I have hopes the show will survive based on what I've read about the people involved with it, too. And, uh, you know, it's a totally captivating and compelling story and has very serious conflicts in it. I mean, right away, I got hooked into this show. Who, that... play, who plays... Um, uh, Gold, Mr. Gold on that, because he is excellent, Scottish actor. Oh, don't know all the names of the actors. Yeah, no. I love him. But uh, without giving anything away, already in the second episode of Once Upon a Time, the town clock in the Civic Square does move five minutes ahead. Kind of creepy. <laughs> First season is now done, second season to come. Put this one on your watch list. It is a fun ride. Yes, indeed. So I thought maybe we should take a larger look at the whole world of uh, fantasy and... and um, you know, fairy tales themselves. I pulled out my encyclopedia just to find out what the history of the fairy tale was. Very interesting. Um, fairy tale is the name generally applied to a folk tale with supernatural characters or incidents, which is told to children. By extension, it has come to apply to any imaginary tale for children. The folk fairy tales dealt with trolls, mermaids, and other supernatural beings, as well as the creatures known as fays or elves. Modern stories dealing with human-seeming animals, familiar objects or toys, or supernatural beings invented by the author are also called fairy tales. A fairy tale is usually short, but the term may be applied to a full-length book as well. Myths and sagas, like folk stories, have been transmitted from generation to generation by word of mouth, and there are thus many elements of folk culture which appear in all three types. Myths, however, have to do with the gods. Sagas with the heroes, whereas fairy tales have from the beginning been regarded as imaginative material, tales told for amusement rather than enlightenment or information. Don't know if that's always true, but that's probably how they started. Many folk tales are told originally as true experiences, crossed the border into fairyland, and became part of the general heritage of familiar stories. An important question about folk folk tales, which has preoccupied scholars, is their origin. It has been thought that they are rooted deep in myths which explained natural phenomenon and that they are symbolic of these phenomenon. The story of Sleeping Beauty, for instance, obviously portrays the sleep of the earth during the winter and its reawakening in the spring. Well, now, when I read that, I'm thinking, gee, that wasn't too obvious to me. (laughs) But I can see the analogy, you know. It's a Uh, stretch. I thought so, but obvious to the writers of this encyclopedia. Certainly it cannot be denied, they write, that the same primitive beliefs which peopled woods and mountains with hostile and friendly spirits at the same time filled early stories with creatures whose ill will or goodwill brought man bad luck or good luck. It's going too far, however, to look for far-fetched symbolism in every folk tale. Little Red Riding Hood may represent the glowing sunset swallowed by the dark night wolf, but again, she may not. 
Andrew Land's opinion was that although such theories may possess a certain validity, the real source of folk stories is the experience of the people, historical characters, folk customs, and the emotional life of man. The first collection of fairy tales to appear in English was a translation of a book by Charles Perrault, published in French in 1697. A supplementary title furnished the name Mother Goose, which became attached to collections of nursery rhymes. The English edition of 1729 contained Perrault's eight stories, including Sleeping Beauty, Bluebeard, Puss in Boots, Cinderella, and Hop o' My Thumb. Perrault's stories had a profound influence, as well as a lasting popularity. They were told with a certain artistry and selectiveness. He felt that a certain modernization and purification was necessary to turn the cruder folk tales into fairy to- stories for children. He thus omitted horrible features, added graceful touches, and intensified the drama. The Grimm brothers, who lived a century later, collected German folk tales, or Marchen, more from the point of view of philologists and ethnologists that they were. And the stories included in their collections are told in a rougher, less artistic, and more authentic manner. The first book of stories, called Kinder und Hausmarchen, 1812 to 15, contains many stories dear to generations of children, including Hansel and Gretel, the fisherman and his wife, the elves and the shoemaker, Snow White, Rumpelstiltskin, and many others. Among the many story patterns to recur again and again are the following. A monster is killed by a hero. This is also the theme of sagas and myths. A bride or bridegroom transgresses a mystic command and suffers a penalty. That actually happens in uh, Once Upon a Time, too, doesn't it? Yes. Um, Certain tasks are performed to secure a desirable marriage. A younger sister or brother triumphs over his or her elders, and so on. These motifs mirror the social characteristics of early civilization and sometimes express fundamental drives of human nature. The first writer to invent fairy tales, as well as record them, was Hans Christian Andersen, a Dane who devoted his creative genius to the writing of fairy tales, which are considered classics. He was also the first to use objects familiar to children, such as the tin soldiers, as the protagonists of stories. Among his best-known stories are The Snow Queen, The Red Shoes, The Brave Tin Soldier, and The Ugly Duckling. In England, Lewis Dodgson's Alice in Wonderland, published in 1865, departed from the tradition that stories for children must be moral homilies. Okay. I also looked up the word, just look up the word fairy, where that word originally came from, too. It says it's a supernatural creature known in folklore, the product of imagination, tradition, or actual belief, and included elves, trolls, pixies, mermaids, giants, and other inhabitants of that imaginary land which color the superstitions and tales of all primitive peoples. The term comes from the French fairy or fairy, spelled two different ways, and was first uh, seen in the medieval romances. The Scandinavian and Greek mythologies played a large part in the conceptions which the English poets formed of fairies. Fairies were originally thought to be of human size, but the tiny airy fairies of Shakespeare, they actually use that term in the encyclopedia, had a strong influence on subsequent conceptions of English poets. Various ideas about these inhabitants of another world are common in folklores of all countries. um, Fairies are mischievous. They occasionally need human aid. Their instructions must be followed, or a terrible penalty will ensue, and so on. These superstitions derived from the animistic religion of all primitive peoples are used as plot devices in fairy tales. 
So I guess the answer is fairies are to fairy tales what transporters and warp drives are to Star Trek. Plot devices. Some way to advance <laughs> that plot without having to go through all those details. So that's basically an outline of basic history of fairy tales. Coming up next, our red alert theme continues via a red riding hood alert. Um, you know, back in the mid-90s, uh, a fellow named James Finn Garner published a couple of fairy tale books that were minor bestsellers. One was called Politically Correct Bedtime Stories in 1994, and another one was called Once Upon a More Enlightened Time in 1995, which to me seems considerably less funny and far more ironic and prophetic than many might have believed at the time they were first published. And, you know, it got me thinking, if sarcasm and ridicule are supposed to be weapons against political correctness, they certainly haven't slowed it in our society. So coming up, when we return after this interlude from Desperate Housewives, we'll have a little fun with a couple of fairy tales of political correctness told in fairy tale style. Is it funny ha-ha or funny boo-hiss? We'll let you decide after we return after this. I think this is going to be a great version of Little Red Riding Hood. And it is your involvement that make the place here at Barcliffe Academy so special. Thank you. <laughs> and now I would like to turn over the next part of our meeting to our parent coordinator, the amazing Maisie Gibbons. Thank you, Ms. Truesdale. Now, before everyone leaves, we have new copies of the script up here. Tilda and Francis and I went to the rehearsal yesterday, and we were a little troubled by the ending. Killing the wolf. It sends the wrong message to our kids. And we believe that animals should only be euthanized as a last resort. <laughs> Do you find something amusing? I'm sorry, I thought you were kidding. No. Oh, okay. So in our version, the wolf is aggressive because he has a thorn in his paw. And the woodsman will take out the thorn and send Mr. Wolf on his way. I'm sorry, aren't we doing Little Red Riding Hood? Yes. So then you are aware that the wolf is a bad guy. He eats Little Red's grandma. If you let him go, he's just gonna chow down on other defenseless old ladies. I I'm sorry, and you are? I'm Lynette Scavo. My twins just joined. They're playing oak trees. Of, of course, Lynette. Uh, let's see, you are signed up to take tickets the night of the show, is that right? Yeah. Well, with all due respect, let's leave the creative suggestions to the mothers who've assumed the heavy lifting, shall we? Sure. Whatever. Sorry I'm late. As I'm sure you have all heard, Celia Bond broke her wrist playing tennis. Which means we are now in desperate need of someone to do the costumes. I'm keeping my fingers crossed here. Are there any volunteers? I'll do it. Really? That's a... Do you know how to sew? Absolutely. Well, uh, great. Thank you, Lynette. Okay, so now that I'm going to do some heavy lifting, I believe I have the right to talk about the changes made to the script. Mm -hmm. 
Um, ladies, we all grew up with Little Red Riding Hood, and we survived it, scary stuff and all. So I say to hell with political correctness. Let our kids experience this classic like it was meant to be enjoyed. Let's kill the damn wolf and just put on the best show we can. Yay. <laughs> Let's kill the damn political correctness. <laughs> I'll second that. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's been tried, and one fellow that tried it was James Finn Garner back in the mid-'90s, and he wrote a couple of funny little books retelling some stories. Just to give you an example of how he, he did uh, parts of Hansel and Gretel, can't do the whole story because it's a bit long, but he starts it off by saying, Deep in a forested bioregion, stood a small, humble chalet, and, that, and in that chalet lived a small, humble family. The father was a tree butcher by trade, <laughs> and he was doing his best to raise his two pre-adults, named Hansel and Gretel. The family tried to maintain a healthy and conscientious lifestyle, but the demands of the capitalist system, especially its irresponsible energy policies, worked ceaselessly to smother them. Soon they were at a complete economic disadvantage and found themselves unable to live in the lifestyle to which they had become accustomed, paltry though it may have been. So with the little money that was coming in, there was not enough to feed them all. So regretfully, the tree butcher was forced to devise a plan to be rid of his children. He decided to take them deep into the woods as he went about his daily work and then abandoned them there. It was a sad commentary on the plight of single-family households, but he could not, or single-parent households, but he could see no alternative. Now, I can't read the whole story, of course, but you can see where it's going. Still, a few highlights are worth mentioning. So, of course, you know the story. Poor Hansel overhears his father's plans, runs away with his younger sister in tow, then comes up upon the wicked witch in the forest in her gingerbread house, which is not quite a gingerbread house in this one, but we won't get into that. It's a bit of an alterna alternative universe in this version. Is that a tofu house? <laughs> yeah, I don't... <laughs> but um, they, they, meet, they come to the house, they meet the witch, and then, then it continues. The children were startled. Hansel asked, Please forgive my, bluntless, but are you, or my bluntness, but are you a wicked witch? The woman laughed. No, no, my dear, I'm not a witch. I'm a Wiccan. I'm no more evil than anyone else. And I certainly don't eat little pre-adults like all the rumors you would have you believe. I worship nature and the goddess and mix herbs and natural potions to help people. Really? Now, why don't you both come in for a nice cup of coltsfoot tea? The pre-adults were finally convinced of the Wiccan's sincerity when they met her neighbors and kinfolk. To welcome the children, these gentle people held a gathering that night in the moonlight in which they stripped off all their clothes, rubbed mud on each other, and danced in a circle to the sound of orcanas and panpipes. It was an inspiring sight, and it felt so right and natural that Hansel and Gretel decided then and there to give up their old lives and join the forest people. Over time, Hansel and Gretel came to love the Wiccan and their lives in the forest. As they grew older and more empowered, they began to assert their bonds with Mother Earth in a more distinct and tangible way. With courage and vigor, they planned and engaged in many deep ecology actions to protect their arboreal home. Hansel and Gretel merrily spiked trees, monkey-wrenched mining and bulldozing equipment, and blew up power plants and electrical lines that stretched over nearby farmland with explosives made of all natural ingredients. <laughs> they even earned or learned 15 completely organic rem remedies for powder burns. <laughs> so this story eventually goes on and ends up with the words, and the trees in the forest lived happily <laughs> ever after. <laughs> and of course, there's always Little Red Riding Hood. This is another funny one. There once was a young person named Red Riding Hood who lived with her mother on the edge of a large wood. 
One day her mother asked her to take a basket of fresh fruit and mineral water to her grandmother's house. Not because this was woman's work, mind you, but because the deed was generous and helped engender a feeling of community. Furthermore, their grandmother was not sick, but rather was in full physical and mental health and was fully capable of taking care of herself as a mature adult. So Red Riding Hood set off with a basket through the woods. Many people believe that the forest was a foreboding and dangerous place and never set foot in it. Red Riding Hood, however, was confident enough in her own budding sexuality that such obvious Freudian imagery did not intimidate her. (laughs) (laughs) On the way to Grandma's house, Red Riding Hood was accosted by a wolf who asked her what was in the basket. She replied, some healthful snacks for my grandmother, who certainly is capable of taking care of herself as a mature adult. The wolf said, you know, my dear, it isn't safe for a little girl to walk through these woods alone. Red Riding Hood said, I find your sexist remark offensive in the extreme, (laughs) but I will ignore it because of your traditional status as an outcast from society, the stress of which has caused you to develop your own entire valid worldview. Now, if you'll excuse me, I must be on my way. Red Riding Hood walked on the main path. But because his status outside society had freed him from slavish adherence to linear Western-style thought, the wolf knew a quicker route to Grandma's house. He burst into the house and ate Grandma, an entirely valid course of action for a carnivore such as himself. Then, unhampered by rigid traditionalist notions of what was masculine or feminine, he put on Grandma's nightclothes and crawled into bed. Red Riding Hood entered the cottage and said, Grandma, I've brought you some fat-free sodium-free snacks to salute you in your role as a wise and nurturing matriarch. From the bed, the wolf said softly, Come closer, child, so that I might see you. Red Riding Hood said, Oh, I forgot, you're as optically challenged as a bat. Grandma, what big eyes you have. They have seen much and forgiven much, my dear. Grandma, what a big nose you have. Only relatively, of course, and certainly attractive in its own way. (laughs) It has smelled much and forgiven much, my dear. Grandma, what big teeth you have. The wolf said, I am happy with who I am and what I am, and leaped out of the bed. He grabbed Red Riding Hood in his claws, intent on devouring her. Red Riding Hood screamed, not out of alarm at the wolf's apparent tendency towards (laughs) cross-dressing, but because of his willful invasion of her personal space. Her screams were heard by a passing woodchopper person, or log fuel technician, as he preferred to be called. When he burst into the college, he saw the melee and tried to intervene. But as he raised his axe, Red Riding Hood and the wolf both stopped. And just what do you think you're doing, asked Red Riding Hood. The woodchopper person blinked and tried to answer, but no words came to him. Bursting in here like a Neanderthal, trusting your weapon to do your thinking for you, she exclaimed. Sexist, speciest, how dare you assume that women and wolves can't solve their own problems without a man's help. When she heard Red Riding Hood's impassioned speech, Grandma jumped out of the wolf's mouth, seized the woodchopper person's axe, and cut his head off. (laughs) After this ordeal, Red Riding Hood, Grandma, and the wolf felt a certain commonality of purpose. They decided to set up an alternative household based on mutual respect and cooperation, and they lived together in the woods happily ever after. Anything sound real about that to you, Robert? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds disgustingly saccharine. It is. And it certainly sounds like a lot of what we're hearing in the news today and the way they talk about issues. It's, it's, it's absolutely funny. You know, this, um, this author had a serious note, which he put into his book, and I think I got time to squeeze it in just before the bottom of the hour here, which he called the politically correct alphabet. I'll just go through it quickly. I think this is a little more serious commentary. A is for activist, itching to fight. B is for beast, with its animal rights. C was a cripple, now differently abled. 
D is a drunk who is liquor-enabled. E is an ecologist who saves spotted owls. F was a forester, now staffing McDonald's. G is a glutton who says he's food-centered. H is a hermaphrodite, skirting problems of gender. I is an ism. You'd better believe it. J is a jingoist. Love it or leave it. K is a kettle. The pot can't call black. Life is, L is a lifestyle, not bound to the pack. M is the mindset with bias galore. N was a Negro, but not anymore. O is an oppressor, devoid of self-love. P is the patriarchy. See O above. Q is the quip that cost someone his job. R is the reasoning done by a mob. S is a sexist that's brewing a tempest, or that's, that's a slobbering menace. T is a teapot that's brewing a tempest. U is for umbrage at the slightest transgression. V is a valentine, a tool of oppression. W is for woman, however it's spelled. X is a chromosome we share in ourselves. Y is yogi for easily led. Z is a zombie, the differently dead. <laughs> That's pretty well it. And then he, then he writes, the traditional order of the letters in the alphabet is, of course, completely arbitrary. In spite, of, in spite of its association with excellence in archaic, competitive, literary, obsessed school grading programs, A is no better or more deserving than the letters X, Y, and Z. <laughs> so that's that. And that's it for politically correct fairy tales, which are unfortunately becoming part of our politically correct fairy tale that is reality. We'll be back after this break to continue our discussion. Hey, Lainey. So what do we got here? That's a good question. I can tell you this much, based on body temp and lividity, our victim died between 10 and midnight. Claw marks? She was attacked by an animal? Well, she was running from something. She's got dirt on her feet. What animal in Central Park could maul a person to death? I'm not even sure that's what happened. These lacerations look shallow, non-lethal, but I won't know exactly what killed her until I get her back to the morgue. Do you have an ID? No wallet or purse, so we don't know who she is. Um... Isn't it obvious? Am I the only one seeing this? Huh. Red cloak in the woods, animal attack. She's Little Red Riding Hood. Great Castle, I'll call in an APB for the Big Bad Wolf. Do you have a better theory? Hey, Ryan. Do you think you could call dispatch, see if there are any reports of a violent animal running around the park? Like a wolf? A big bad one? Really? That is exactly how I pictured her. It's freaky. My older sister used to bring me that story. Okay, when you're done reliving your childhood memories, do you also think that you could canvas the area for witnesses and anyone that might know her name? And I bet you it's not going to be Little Red Riding Hood. On it. All the better to eat you with. No sooner had the wolf said these words when he leaped up and gobbled down poor Little Red Riding Hood. Well, the good news is the wolf can talk, so if we can find him, we might be able to get a confession. Yeah, except in the original story, the wolf doesn't kill Little Red Riding Hood. The huntsman cuts her out of the wolf's stomach, and then she kills the wolf. Someone's a Brothers Grimm fan. Oh, yeah. They didn't sugarcoat it. They understood that fairy tales are pretty much horror stories. Exactly. Which is why we all need them to grapple with the unknown, which is why they tap into our primal fears, like being alone in the woods or getting eaten by monsters. They're not horror stories. They're life lessons. If you do the right thing, you get to live happily ever after. But only in fairy tales. Speaking of fairy tales, turns out that our victim really was Red Riding Hood. Are you drinking Castle's Kool-Aid now? No. I mean that she was actually wearing a Red Riding Hood costume, so it's the right label. Oh, okay. So then why was she wearing it in the middle of the woods at night? 
On her way to grandmother's house? Mm, I doubt it. Her grandma lives in Tallahassee. From an artist, I like comic books and superheroes like Superman or Batman, but I'm not sure if objectivism would condemn these figures because they are not only selfless and altruistic, but also by definition, they act not according to nature. They're breaking its laws. Do you think that comic books about superheroes are harmful to young readers? I disagree with you on every point. They are not altruistic, not the ones I've read. They're concerned with justice. They're like a, a police force, a super police force. They want to capture, kill, avenge uh, the evil. I've never seen them undertake a, a, a social or altruistic cause. I never saw Superman promote Obamacare. It's always justice. As to violating the laws of nature, no, it's simply a fantasy. You have to hear an early, earlier podcast. A fantasy is perfectly rational as long as it has a meaning in reality. And here the meaning is obviously good versus evil and the importance of the good winning. And that, by meaning, is the opposite of today's view, you know, multiculturalism and relativism and don't judge anybody, there is no good, we're all the same, egalitarianism. So in that sense, it has a real good meaning for practical life. Is it harmful to youngsters? No. It's fun, it's excitement, it's inspiration. It gives them something to admire, like strength, uh, action, commitment. Uh, so uh, I think they can only uh, benefit uh, from them. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we're talking about fairy tales. And if you'd like to join our conversation about fairy tales, give us a call at 519-661-3600. You can also email us. If you have a thought later on, yeah, feel feel free to argue with us over our interpretations of Red Riding Hood. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like I'm back in English class. Yeah, um, you can email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And that was uh, a clip you just heard uh, from Leonard Peikoff, of course, Ayn Rand's intellectual heir. And I picked that one up on his podcasts. You know, I bet you that was a question that was in the back of a lot of quote objectivist type minds you it know? was as a matter of fact, or anyone who thinks mind. who thinks you know well reality is what's it it's the hard and fast you know you got to stick to the facts yeah can't have any fantasy in your life and there are people like that oh i've met them <laughs> <laughs> i've met them and, and that's basically that clip brought me to uh, what i want to discuss this last half hour i'm going to take a little bit more of a i don't know if you want to call it a little more philosophic or serious sure. uh, also a little more snide look at um, More fantasies. snide? You know, you're yes, going to outdo yeah. my snideness. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be snidier. Mm. So that's the question right there. So how does a person who doesn't believe in superpowers or fairies, goblins, orcs, gods, or demons reconcile their enjoyment of genres like fantasy and science fiction with their knowledge of reality? That's a good question. Yeah, I thought so. Thank you. Here, well, well no, it was well phrased. It was, wasn't exactly how you uh, how you asked. It wasn't what I was expecting. Oh, actually. okay. So, is the reading or even the writing of tales of magic, wizardry, or scantily clad women on Mars or Barsoom? Oh, I love those ones. A complete and useless waste of a person's time, or does it fill some psychological or intellectual need? 
And I believe that fanciful imagination of the kind that leads to creations like, for example, Star Wars or The Lord of the Rings is a natural part of the human mind, a consequence of an evolutionary path that allowed us to hunt prey by imagining where they might be in the savannah or in the forest. It's a delightful side effect from the genetic necessity in humans to plan for the future, as in understanding when the drought will come so that we'll know when it's time to move to greener pastures and to manipulate his own environment to make it more suitable for survival and thriving. So, imagination, I think, is perfectly human, and to think about things like fantasy and science fiction is part of being human. Now, Ayn Rand defined imagination. She's put it like this. It says, it's nothing more than the ability to rearrange the things one has observed in reality. That's her brief definition. It's this ability which allowed us hairless apes to survive as intelligent hunters and gatherers. The ability to rearrange the objects we're aware of in reality allows us to build weapons, buildings, computers, spaceships. It's also this ability which has given us dreams of going to the moon and beyond and exploring what's beyond the horizon or at the bottom of the sea. So imagination can have productive outcomes or simply entertaining outcomes, and both are of value. You know, you, know, you, you make an interesting point there. I think when you talk about imagination, you're almost talking about a self-directed um, activity in a way. But you know what I find is interesting about fairy tales and science fiction and shows like that, or, or just the writing itself, is that you're not dealing with your imagination. You're getting to compare how you think in imaginative ways with how someone else might be thinking. Am I crazy? Am I the only person that thinks like this or has these strange, you know duplicate views of life in the sense of, the, the, you know, in looking at it in more of a symbolic way? Or do other people do the same thing? Oh, sure that's enough, really we find interesting. Yeah. Sure enough, because we see these these uh, these shows, we realize, hey, we're all kind of thinking along the same lines <laughs> to some degree. correct. As a matter of fact, and to me, that's, the, that's a huge bridge that is crossed. Yeah. Well, because we're also exposed to reality in the same way, yeah. we also uh, have the same cultural experiences. Um, the mind is putting all of these elements together in such ways that um, our hmm. imaginations seem to cross. It's almost like the Kinsey sex manual when people first found out that they were I would sexual. never have brought that well, up. Well, no, but when that came <laughs> out, that, that was a huge shock to people that, that holy cow, I, I think sexually like somebody else does, uh -huh. right? And that was the big revelation when that came out is that these, this type of thinking wasn't isolated. And I think you're having the same kind of phenomenon with this genre, which was also once kind of put down as something that only the underclass was ever interested in or the, or the lower class or uneducated. Or at least talked about it. Yeah. yeah and I think that was the thing. That's what I mean. It was a quote, totally, it almost taboo. It, yeah. When I was a kid, yeah. science fiction was taboo almost. It was oh, like, agreed, totally. As a matter of fact, um, just think of... Uh, just. Think of George Lucas, right? One of the first science fiction movies out there that really, really made it big. Um, this, uh, sure, Forbidden Planet was out there, which is one of the, probably the first best... Um, good movie, too. Good movie well of done. science fiction. But Star Wars, I think, really hit it off and, and created a whole uh, nation full of science fiction lovers. And when George Lucas used his imagination to dream up that story of Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, what he was he doing was he's rearranging what he knew of reality when it came to 
things like uh, planets and possible aliens and far-off worlds, but he combined those imaginative elements with an understanding of reality when it pertains to the human being. Star Wars was not only a story of spaceships and lightsabers, but also a story of a boy's longing to leave home and to do great things, of good and evil, of love and friendship. <clears throat> and science fiction and fantasy stories are not simply a useless waste of time. In fact, they're part of an aesthetic enjoyment of life. They're as much a part of literature and art as any great novel or story of humanity. And just as you said, Bob, back uh, back in the day, um, let's go back a little further than you and I, back in the 30s and 40s, science fiction and fantasy were, well, fantasy probably didn't even exist in many respects, but science fiction certainly did, and it was considered amateurish, childish and not worthy of an adult's consideration. And given the quality of such material produced back then, I can see where people would have come to such a conclusion, actually, to tell you the truth. But over the years, the two genres have grown to be scholarly productions and treatments of the human condition. Well, that brings to mind hand Christian Anderson. He must have set, set Europe on its, you know, on its edge there with, with putting out fairy tales that were considered classics, that were actually written in something people could accept. From, yes. a, from a literary standpoint. I think it may have been part of the uh, the morality that was being imbued in, in the stories that he was creating as well that oh, people no doubt. Would, yeah. would pick up on. But go back about 100 years and you got Jules Verne and George Orwell. I think they were lone figures in the field of science fiction. But today, consider the thousands of accomplished writers creating stories which capture the imagination of child and adult alike. The stories of Star Trek have spurred young people to become scientists and engineers and astronauts. And the stories of Robert A. Heinlein and or Kurt Vonnegut Jr. have challenged long-held political and religious beliefs and prompted social changes. And those of J.R.R. Tolkien have been studied for their scholarly use of language. But there's a potential danger in any work of fiction or fantasy, and that's when the mind loses focus of what's real and unreal. And when we come back from this short break, we'll get into the blurring lines of reality and fantasy. Well, how are things, Stanley? How's the talking ladybug? Ladybugs don't talk. It's all make-believe. It's, it's imagining. Imagining is bad. I'm not going to do it anymore. Ah, great things start with imagination, Stanley. Great paintings, great poems, even great scientific achievements. Now, you take old Isaac Newton. There he was this fine summer day, sitting under this apple tree. And, uh, kaplop. An apple conks him on the noggin. Now, did old Isaac Newton say, ah, an apple, and proceed to consume it? Not at all. Not by the great horned toad, he didn't. He contemplated that apple, and he contemplated the tree, and he imagined. He imagined great, heavy objects hurtling through space. And out of a falling apple on a summer day, and a fertile imagination, came Newton's laws of gravity and motion. Golly. <laughs> and that's not all. Suppose Benjamin Franklin hadn't had the imagination to fly that kite in an electrical storm. Your mother wants you, Stanley. Run along, son. kindly not to fill my son's head with nonsense, Mr. O'Hara. As for Benjamin Franklin, he caught a terrible cold in that storm and nearly died of pneumonia. 
Imagination indeed. Isn't it remarkable that of all the machines devised by man, not one can replace imagination? Do you think they'll ever build a computer that can write poetry or paint pictures? Or replace the look in a child's eye on Christmas morning? Why, Martin, that's lovely. Do you believe in the Easter Bunny, Mrs. Brown? Of course. <laughs> the Easter Bunny. Really? <laughs> Simmer down, Uncle Martin. Think of your blood pressure. Martians don't have any blood pressure. Oh, that's right. Well, then start thinking about your fuses. You're liable to blow one. That man's impossible. Well, he's just got a logical mind, that's all. Two and two always make four. Not when they're rabbits. <laughs> I bet you he told Stanley that there is no Easter bunny. There's no Easter bunny? And no Santa Claus. That's an American. It's even on Martian. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, funny, Bob. You picked out that clip from my favorite version. I think I it's like perfect. It. Two and two always equals four, except when they're rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's thinking outside the box. Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> so we're talking actually about blurring the lines of fantasy and reality and the use of imagination. I'm going to go back to Ayn Rand again. She's uh, quoted here, Imagination is not a faculty for escaping reality, but a faculty for rearranging the elements of reality to achieve human values. It requires and presupposes some knowledge of the elements one chooses to rearrange. An imagination divorced from knowledge has only one product, a nightmare. An imagination that replaces cognition is one of the surest ways to create neuroses, unquote. And a good example of this, Bob, was dramatized in the 1982 movie Mazes and Monsters. Have you seen that one? Yes, I do. I yeah. Where the protagonist, played by Tom Hanks, can no longer distinguish between reality and the role-playing game he spent countless hours playing with his college friends. The fantasy had become reality, and reality to him was the fantasy. Of course, we see this every day, as ancient tales of good and evil have become revered as the literal word of a deity, so that today we have people who actually believe in things like angels and demons and ghosts and cherubs. They actually believe it. History has so repeated the credibility of these ancient stories that even intelligent people today have blurred the lines of reality and fantasy so that millions have died for these beliefs and their beliefs over which fictional god is the one true god and which among the hundreds of deities and hundreds of fables are fictional. To those of us who don't quite see these ancient morality plays as fact, we shake our heads because for us it's as if there were churches and temples devoted to the praise of Gandalf the wizard and devotees of Frodo the hobbit who saved Middle-earth. Perhaps 2,000 years from now, this is a little bit of a, a, a thought experiment here, perhaps a couple thousand years from now, mm -hmm. when the Lord of the Rings will be found in some dusty cave having survived millennia of war and disaster. And her distant descendants will look upon this work of fiction and fantasy as being true stories of orcs and elves and goblins and dwarves and men who lived thousands of years ago. And maybe they'll build an entire culture and system of government and morality around the interactions of the characters of the book. And maybe, having a bit more intelligence than we do, they might see it for what it is. A fantasy, a great story of camaraderie and fellowship as a group of heroes try to fight 
evil and save the world. That is the danger of blurring the lines of imagination with knowledge of reality. Neuroses. There may be no Easter bunny, but there's no harm in pretending now and then. Or is there? Well, it depends on why you're doing it, doesn't it? I guess so. I don't think that's an open and shut case when you look at it that way. No, I believe pretending is is, is great. And and have you ever read Lord of the Rings, Bob? No, and you know how I feel about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> you're asking me. I have never even gotten through. I tried watching the movie, and I just couldn't do it. And which is very strange for me because it's not the genre that that does it for me. How far in did you get? That's a trilogy, right? I, well, well it's, I, at least it was in three it was parts. That one I, book, yeah. But I, I, I got through the one part, and I just it didn't do a thing for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, and it's just like I my attempt at Robert Heinlein's <laughs> "Time Enough for Love." I read that book two thirds of the way through twice, and I could not finish it because it just bogged down. No, you know, I, I can sympathize with that. I remember reading "Time Enough for Love" many, many book. years ago, that's and I stopped as well. I stopped about maybe one third in and put it away, and then for years. I, I, I wanted to get at it because I've read everything that Heinlein's written, all of his stories, all of his science fiction mm. stories I've read, and even some of the fic- uh, nonfiction. But um, Time Enough for Love was a very difficult book, but once I picked it up again for the second time and got through it, um, I thought it was fascinating. The Tales of Lazarus. I, th- I must have found it fascinating enough to read it two thirds of the way through. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what happened there that made me stop reading it? I, I don't even remember anymore. And I do like some of Heinlein's books. I love Stranger in a Strange Land. Mm hmm. And, uh, I can grok that. Yeah. <laughs> but mostly, I found most of his novels started off great and petered out for me. They didn't maintain that intensity that, that, that they started off with, for me, anyway. No, you're right. They almost had a, a um, Stephen King uh, uh, quality to them in that they had a great... Uh, it was like watching a great show, but then the end just didn't wrap it up as, as, nightly, as nicely that you wanted to. But just think of any Stephen King fantasy. Right, mm-hmm. um, Cujo. What the hell was that about? <laughs> you know, rabbit dog attacks woman in car. The end. There was no. There was nothing to it. Can't say I've seen that one. Or the stand. There was no. There was no conclusion to the stand. You know, they would they trek across this barren wasteland of the United States, post-apocalyptic. For what? There was no resolve to a lot of these, uh, these well, stories. Well, that almost defies the definition of story, then, doesn't it? If there's no resolution, it does. Um, you know. I, I, I was once asked by, I don't know if it was my grandson or a younger child, what, why the heroes never get killed in, in, the, in the shows, right? And I basically said in a, in a backhanded way, well, if you killed them, you wouldn't have a show anymore. Now, have you been watching Game of Thrones? But uh, No, I'm going to start watching it. Oh, you'll, I think you might enjoy but, that one. But the way I put it to him, I said, listen, you know, the reason Captain Kirk survived all of his missions was, be- and that's why you have the story. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been there to tell them to you. Right? <laughs> He's a protagonist. You, you start <laughs> off with that with that assumption that there is someone who survived the ordeal to tell the story, right? Now, it, if you, if you no, watch Game of Thrones or if you've read the books, I tried reading the books and I couldn't. And as a matter of fact, when I when I've I've watched all the episodes of Game of Thrones up to this, mm-hmm. uh, the ones we're at now about season two, another big hit on here. So. It's an amazing uh, fantasy. I think it's really, really uh, well done. Uh, the thing is, they kill off their heroes in that one, too. Written in the first season, the guy, as a matter of fact, crossing uh, Lord of the Rings here, the movies, with this one, the guy who played uh, Boromir, Sean Bean, gets, well, I shouldn't give well, it away, but he I, gets killed. <laughs> I guess that's a situation where the story totally take, actually, takes, actually takes precedence <laughs> over the characters, eh? <laughs> oh, did I give away the end or give away something there? Yes, Ed? you did. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I don't know but if our, I don't know if our audience heard heard uh, Ed there. Are they hearing your voice, Ed? 
Uh, yes, they are. Oh, good. <laughs> should okay. not have given away that. Sometimes only we hear them. He survived through ripe talking. old age. Okay. <laughs> no, I had to wait until the season was over. I didn't think that was giving away, but uh, anyway. <laughs> now, it was a great show, um, and these fantasies, I think, serve a purpose. They're fantastic escapes. Like, like Rand said, not necessarily from reality, but they make you think, they make you imagine. I think they're a shared, I, 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 common uh, cultural experience that we can all relate to. Unless, of course, you're a little behind and give away a spoiler. Well, that's the problem with today's television. It's not so regularly watched like it used to be, you know, when people sat down and watched something on the specific night it was on. Now people will watch oh. a series and start watching it, like me, maybe two years after it's already off the air. Well, with the internet especially. Right. Yeah. And so it's... And, and we now have, after, you know, pretty well, might as well say, almost 100 years of, of movies and television, we have this huge library, and each generation is going to have a, a larger past to, to, to delve into. Like, you know, my grandson's at an age where you can explain to him things that are popular expressions from movies that he didn't hear about. Catch 22, what does that mean? Where 23 think, skidoo. Yeah, things like that, right? <laughs> Which are all from, from um, our cultural past. Well, I think parents, it's going to be their role to filter out Always what's is, yeah. the good stuff and say, okay, kids, sit down, we're watching Clockwork Orange today. Well, of course, you got to have to wait till a little older yeah. <laughs> to It'd watch that It'd be interesting to see... You know, a hundred years from now, which we won't be around to see, but which of the great classics of today actually still survive and float to the top, and which stories become the classics of the future from our from our era? Wouldn't that be interesting? That is interesting. You know, I was just thinking that the other day because I was listening to the Beatles, and I had to put it on my own music because, um, boy, I, I don't hear many Beatles out there, and I thought that at the time. The Beatles would stand the test of time, become a classic, and you'll be hearing them a thousand years from now. Well, they and will. they're slowly starting to peter out. There are people out there who don't recognize the Beatles for the Beatles when they hear a tune like that, kids. Oh, that I understand, yes. But I don't think the, the, their music will ever disappear any more than Beethoven's music will disappear well, no, or I mean, Bach or anyone else. No, because, because we have recordings we do today, you know. <laughs> but, uh, and also because the music has a quality of its own that will, that will survive. I think that's the primary concern. If it was crappy to begin with, I don't think it's going to last too long. You know, the thing is that they had a great imagination Mm -hmm. and they were great lyricists and they could put a couple of notes together and and really come up with some great music. Let me just go down a list of some science fiction and fantasy authors. Tell me if you've heard of them or read them and what your impressions are. Isaac Asimov. Well, I've heard of him. Um, of course. Name, uh, I, don't, I think I've read some of his books, but it would have been a long time ago. Name, name The Foundation couple. Trilogy? or Never read those. No. Foundation Series? No? no. Oh, Asimov okay. was just on the edge of my science I robot. peripheral. Oh. Yeah, yeah he wrote those one. rules oh, yeah. about robots. Oh, that's right. I'm familiar with those, yes. Yeah. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke, of course. Arthur C. Clarke was one of my faves. Yeah, same and, here. Um, Child, Childhood's May- End was my favorite of his. That was my favorite, too. Oh. <laughs> and although I really liked... Um, his rendition of 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was an odd book that stands on its own for mm-hmm. what it is because it was actually written after the movie. The movie. Yeah. And Kurt so, Vonnegut. And uh, not Kurt Vonnegut, but... Um, uh, um, I know you're thinking about uh, the director, the director right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Kubrick. Kubrick. Kubrick, thank you. Um, because uh, he directed also a Kurt Vonnegut uh, yes. movie. Yes, yeah. um, but when I read the book, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, I thought it was awesome. 
And it was mm-hmm. literally scene by scene what was in the movie. Only now you knew what was going on in the astronaut's mind at the time. What was he thinking? What was he looking at? It gave you so much more to it. And I'm go- I was going, geez, this is amazing that this book came out after the movie. That well, doesn't, ha- doesn't usually happen. The great thing, here's a, a marriage of reality and fantasy again, because Arthur C. Clarke was uh, the person who first came up with the idea of geosync- geostationary um, synchronous orbits of satellites. And say oh, he's a scientist put, in his own right. Oh, he was, yes. yes. And if you put a satellite out at whatever it was, 22,000 miles over the equator, it would stay there fixed over that part of the Earth and you could beam down communications. Mm-hmm. So he came up with that and he was also quite a scuba diver and he was quite an imaginative person and he envisioned things like space elevators and um, uh, with rendezvous with Rama, he huge space stations in, in, in space, which undoubtedly at some point in the future will come true. And it's this imagination which is driving reality, and not only reality driving imagination. At some point in the future, aren't didn't they, didn't they just send up a private payload to our space station? <laughs> yes, SpaceX <laughs> just, just sent up a rocket to the International Space yeah, Station. Yeah, so reality Fantasy is becoming, coming uh, to reality. What about um, J.K. Rowling? Harry well, Potter. Well, have you already know. I have not. I'm. I'm probably the only person in my family who You're has totally not culturally deprived. Not read any of that stuff. <laughs> my mother's read it. My daughter's read it. My, you know, my relatives have all read it. But well, you would not believe, and I. I was a little reluctant to pick it up. I thought yeah. it was rather childish as well. But then well, the, there's that. that pre that preconcepted uh, conception of a particular genre. I brought. I picked it up, and that's quite readable. I read all her um, Harry Potter books. Believe it or not, I've seen all the movies. They're quite good fun I don't think for me it's so much that as that I'm just off of fiction as reading material I really stopped fiction a long time ago very very rare fiction I read non-fiction now I read a lot of non-fiction I think it shows. Yeah, I think so, too. (laughs) Anyway, I think that that about wraps up our talk about fantasy, science fiction, and reality. It's a nice light look on this hot May morning. That's right. That's it for this week. And we hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. Be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes. Everything will be alright. My dear sir, this would be a pretty dull world if it weren't for imagination. Especially for a child. Imagination and fantasy are the dividends, the extra added attractions of childhood. Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny? Mr. O'Hara, you are out of this world. (laughs) I know, but that's beside the point. (laughs) 